We're in part 13 of our Joshua series, and there's a couple of good, good quotes there on your sheet that I would love uh, for you to read when you get bored. Let's get into the rest of it. Here we go. I have some concepts that I would like to launch out to you, um, kind of three separate lines. I want you to consider and make this very personal to you as we go through this passage. Here we go. God designs things into our lives to protect us from each other and from ourselves. God sprinkles us into the world for his grand effect. And as we play our servant part, health is brought into our community. The fill in the blank in front of you is this. Too much salt in one area just doesn't taste good anymore. Too much salt in one area just doesn't taste good anymore. Uh, my children, uh, as we have dinner, and I have it structured to where I have uh, dinner with my kids and put them to bed five nights a week. I believe it's very important for dads to be as present as they possibly can and engaged in reading stories and well, when we're having dinner, I never grew up necessarily having consistent dinner around the table. That was brought in a tradition by my wife. And we sit around the table, and I have a, a nine-year-old and a five-year-old turning six. Well, the nine-year-old uh, can do a lot of big girl things like put, butter her own bread, right? Well, the little one wants to do everything sissy's doing, the older one. So... She would like to butter her own bread. Now, what it really would consist of if she did it was just grabbing a whole bunch and just smacking it on one piece, right? It's not spread evenly. Well, her big thing is she wants to salt her own food. Now, <laughs> no matter if we salt it or not, she's like, I can't taste it, I can't taste it. So when we hand it to her, apparently all our salt shakers just come out in one huge dose. So she turns it over and goes, and it all just pours right on one section. So if it's broccoli, one piece of broccoli has a ton of salt, and all the rest of it has none. And it's funny, because then she'll eat another piece and go, there's still not enough salt on this. So she wants to shoot it again. So we always end up having to do it for her. Well, obviously, we know exactly what it tastes like if all this salt is shoved all on one piece. That, unfortunately, is what we keep doing as Christians. God scatters us for a reason. God spreads us out that we might be flavoring, not irritating. This whole concept is why utopias do not work. All throughout history, people have tried to do utopias. Whether it's an Amish movement or whether or not it's a cultic movement or whether it's a commune. The idea starts out that we go, hey, we're like each other. You like Jesus. I like Jesus. Well, let's hang out together. I mean, wouldn't it be great if maybe all our kids got to play together and we all got to spend more time together and it could always be like one big Bible study and, and that would be great. No, it's not. Why? Because that's not what we were designed to do. We're going to go sour too fast. We were designed to be flavoring throughout the world if we all jam in together and wall ourselves off from the world. What's the point? We will eat each other alive. We weren't designed to do that. Utopias always fold because it's not the way it's supposed to be. 
You know, it's interesting because we have a tendency to really resist the call of God to spread out over the world. You remember the Tower of Babel incident where uh, God told mankind, I want you to spread out and fill the face of the earth. Well, they wouldn't do that. They kept jamming together all the time. So he had to scatter the languages just to get them out there. He had to put dividers between people so that they would even separate. You think about uh, the time, and I don't know what really occurred here, but if you remember when Paul and Barnabas as missionaries together, they were hanging out, and it was almost like two big dogs together. Well, they ended up having a falling out, do you remember, over John Mark. And they split. One went this direction, one went that direction. Now, all of a sudden, we have influence in other areas. One of the neat things about this church is that we have a lot of leaders here. A lot of leaders healing, a lot of leaders that serve in other churches. They come on Saturday nights and they come in and get training, but they go back out to their places. And that's not only okay, that's good. Because what they end up doing is getting filled up and then they can go be salt somewhere else. So I love that idea. But if we all kind of glum together, it just ruins the point. So I know that for some of us, we consistently challenge, God, why am I in this neighborhood? Why am I in this job? Why am I in this school? I remember going through uh, uh, secular institutions, right? My BA is from Sac State. And when I went through that, I mean, I, I got hammered on. I mean, it was, it, it was a, a liberal education. It was this whole idea of I was in the English department, so you can't talk English or literature without talking about the Bible, which is such a foundation of all of it. But, of course, it's not favorable. All the discussions on the Bible from all my teachers was always about, well, it's a really neat literature piece, but it's bogus. So, yeah, I understand it's difficult, but aren't we supposed to be there? Aren't we supposed to be scattered out there? If we always complain that, oh, the, the politics are going this way, then why aren't more Christians involved in politics? If we go, oh, well, the, the Hollywood industry is going, always going like this, well, why aren't more Christians involved in the Hollywood industry? If we keep pulling out of everything and bailing out and doing our own little things, how in the world are we salt and light? God knew very well what Israel needed, and what you're about to see is God planning for the future. So, why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles and turn with me to Joshua chapter 20, verse 1. Joshua chapter 20, verse 1, it's page 165, or 165 in the Bibles handed to you. As much as we would look at these passages and say, I don't think there's going to be anything for me, I think you'll find that there is a... Mother load of information. Joshua chapter 20 verse 1. I'm just going to read a couple verses here and then we'll, we'll pray. We're going to do chapters 20 and 21 together today. And as you notice, there's only 24 chapters in this book. So we're rapidly closing this one out. We have a number of books that we're going to be covering. If you hang with us till the end of the year, you will be covering another three books with us after this. And so there's a, they're a lot shorter than Joshua. All right. Now let's go ahead and pick up a couple verses. It says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When you hear the word refuge today, 
I want you to think of God's presence in your life. When you hear of the avenger of blood, I want you to think condemnation, the law in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, that uh, we have an ability to not only read history, but to sit at your feet and listen to what it could mean on a deeper level. Lord, we submit our lives to you and we ask that you would transform us into your image. And Lord, we want to submit our lives into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, we read Joshua 20, verse 1, but you're not going to understand why we need cities of refuge unless you have a background. Keep your finger there and turn back to the left in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21, verse 12. Uh, this whole first portion is dependent upon a certain law that was in place at the time. So Exodus chapter 21, verse 12, page 55 the Bibles that were given to you. So keep your finger in the Joshua passage. We'll be going back there. But I just have verses 12 through 14 to read with you. This was the law at the time. It says, anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. However, if he does not do it intentionally, but God lets it happen, which is a rather striking statement, by the way, he is to flee to a place I will designate. But if a man schemes and kills another man deliberately, take him away from my altar and put him to death. All right. So, capital punishment. That was the law of the land. It was an eye for an eye. What's different about that than our current society is there's no police force. There's no one that's going to do the judicial system in terms of going to figure out whether or not you're guilty. This is kind of the old school clan versus clan, family versus family. You take care of your own attitude. The whole justice system was based on the family. The family was responsible at that time to provide and to protect. And so the way that it works, we will find out very quickly is that whoever the significant representative of the family was, it was their job to go out and execute justice. So, if my family, let's say someone came and killed my sister, as the responsible factor of my family, it was my job to go take them out. Now you would look at that and you'd go, man, that's kind of brutal. We're going old school now, right? We have to think about this in a whole different context. So what are we going to do to verify that justice is served. So we just don't have blood feuds going on all the time. How do we stop it from the, what, Hatfields and McCoys, right? This whole idea. How do we stop it from becoming very only personal and everything about blood vendetta? Well, God knew that that's exactly where it would go, and so he put all sorts of laws in place, just like he put laws in place to protect foreigners. He put laws in place to protect women. He put laws in place to protect slaves. Anyone that in a society was being treated differently, he would put in protection elements. In the same way, he put in protection elements for people that were seen as criminals but may or may not be. And that's where we pick up the story. Let's dive back to Joshua 20, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge 
as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When he flees to one of these cities, he is to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state his case before the elders of that city. All right, now here's how it works. The city gate for any particular city is the direction of the flow of traffic. There's only usually one way in and one way out for protection purposes. That means everybody in the city had to go out the same door. So they would put the leaders at the front door. That way people could talk about business, they could talk about protection issues, they could talk about legal things, and the elders of the city would sit on benches and kind of hang out there during the day, and people would bring their problems to the leaders. What we will find later is that there are six cities of refuge. All of them were in Levite towns. Why is that important? Because they were church guys. The church guys were the legal system in these cities of refuge. Those Levite leaders would sit out front, and they would wait to hear cases. Now, when you kill someone accidentally, right? There's, and there was all sorts of things like that. Where it was kind of like, oh, we're all out chopping wood and my axe head flies off and nails the guy behind me, right? He falls down. Right then you go, oh no. They're all going to think I completely whacked him on purpose. That's not at all what I did. All of a sudden they start going, you better run. Right? It's this whole idea of you got to get out of here because his family's going to come and they're going to come get you. That's their job. That's their responsibility. So you immediately start running. Now, you need to know where the cities of refuge are. That's really helpful to know we have exits down this aisle and this aisle, right? It's this whole idea. You better know how to exit the door and get out. So Jewish tradition says that the roads to the refuge cities were well paved and clear. And they had signs that said, refuge, 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 this way. Because when you're panicked and you're running, you're not thinking clearly. So you're hauling it to the fastest, closest city of refuge. You run up it, uh, out of breath and you go, they're after me. And they go, all right, tell me what happened. I was cutting wood and I, and I flew it off and it hit him. I didn't even mean to. I totally dig that guy. He's really, really nice. I mean, there was this one time that he said something mean to me. But that's not important right now. So what I did is I, I flung off and I hit him and I killed him. All right, come on in. All of a sudden, Bubba, his brother, shows up. And he says, bring him out. He's mine. I appreciate that you're here. However, we have not had our court ruling yet. I don't care about your court ruling. Bring him out. That's not going to happen today, Bubba. You need to go home. Trust me, if we find him to be guilty, oh, we'll send him home. And you'll have your way. All right? This is how the system works. Let's go back to the story. When he flees to one of these cities, he is to stand at the entrance of the city gate and state his case before the elders of that city. Then they are to admit him into their city and give him a place to live with them. Uh, the point is, he's going to be there for a while, so they need to set him up with a job. Nothing is said about how his family is taken care of. So there's a lot of things we don't know how it works. If the avenger of blood pursues him... They must not surrender the one accused because he killed his neighbor unintentionally and without malice aforethought. All right, that word, what, what do they say? Avenger of blood. It's interesting because it says goel, which means kinsman. 
Normally, we associate it with what? Kinsman, redeemer. Because they said that God is our nearest relative that redeems us or takes care of us. And indeed, when you read the story of Ruth, Boaz, you remember that whole story about where she gets her man, the knight in shining armor, he comes riding up. You remember all that. He was her kinsman redeemer. He would be able to buy back her land, protect the family land, protect the family lineage. That's what he was. But this is not kinsman redeemer. This is kinsman of blood. That means the same guy who's responsible for uh, providing is also to provide protection. So if this guy pursues them, they are to stand in the way and say, you don't get him today. We're going to finish up on this. We're going to do our due process and we'll get him back to you. Now it says, and my notes are out of order. There we go. Verse six, he is to stay in that city until he has stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at that time. Then he may go back to his own home in the town from which he fled. All right. Nobody quite knows why the high priest has to die for him to be able to go home. What they assume is it's like a statute of limitations or like a year of Jubilee. In the Old Testament, there was a year that would come up every once in a while and all the slaves would be freed and all the land would be returned. And it was kind of like a do over time. Right. All right. Let's clear the board. Everybody start over again. When the high priest dies, it was a very significant event because he was a big dog. When he dies, all boards cleared. Everyone go back home. Well, let's start over. Now, depending on how old the high priest was, you might be there for a while. Right. Let's say he's 23. <laughs> and you're thinking, man, I want to go back home. I hope he catches a cold. Right. If he's 101. You're thinking, I should be out of here any time this week. All right? So, this is what we're looking at. And a couple of things that I want to I wanna address before we move forward. Um, I cannot address for you the issue of capital punishment in modern-day America. That is a very complicated issue, and everybody's got opinions on it. I think that even within my marriage, certainly early on, we had differences of opinion on capital punishment. Um, in the church, there are many different views on capital punishment, and everybody seems to have a good heart. We just don't all seem to agree. I'm not here to solve that issue for you, but I'm here to point out that in history, at this time in the ancient world, it's a fact. So you must lock that into your mind and know that that's exactly how it was running, and they had to work according to it. So whether you like it or not really doesn't matter. That was the design since the first family. How do we know that? Because... Uh, Adam and Eve had two sons that were mentioned in scripture and their names are Cain and Abel Cain killed Abel and he fled he said to God you have to protect me because they're going to come avenge blood so right off the bat first family we have a blood pursuing I'm going to go kill you because you killed my brother it was right off the bat first family ever so it was that way all the way through so we just need to understand that, that those are the rules. Now, the cities of refuge idea where you could run and find a place to hide for due process is not original to the Jews. In most ancient civilizations, there was a sacred place where you could run to go hide. So that's not new. However, we are immediately supposed to think of God. We're immediately supposed to think of Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in times of trouble. 
This is constantly supposed to be a reminder that when you are in trouble, you run to God. Over and over, the psalmists would say what? You run to him. He's your fortress. He's your rock. He's your protection. And ultimately, he's always the one that protects us. But I think the cities of refuge begin to get even more intriguing when you see it in light of Jesus Christ. Picture this. We are all guilty of breaking the law of God. Are we all clear on that? The Bible says you break one law, you break them all, you're a lawbreaker, you're not getting in. The standard for heaven is perfection. We have all fallen short of that. Therefore, we are all condemned under the law. The law then is hunting us down and Satan is able to accuse. He is going to say, you blew it. You're wrong. You defied your God. You spent time in adultery. You're hanging out with other, other people, other gods. You have no right to be in the kingdom of heaven. And he would accuse constantly. However, because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, we run to him and his righteousness is given to us. And the Bible says there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in, like the city, who are in Christ Jesus. Right? So as the law is pursuing us for blood and saying you deserve to die, Jesus embraces us and stops the enemy and says you have nothing. I've paid it. Leave him alone. And it says that we have one in heaven who is interceding for us on our behalf. Amen? Yeah, pretty awesome. Jesus is amazing. Now, let's go to verse 7. So they, and they had to get very practical on this, so they, like Moses directed in Deuteronomy, set apart these cities. Kadesh in Galilee, that's Jesus' area, in the hill country of Naphtali. Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. And Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron in the hill country of Judah. Now we ran into Hebron last week. Who settled that town? Who kicked out the giants? Caleb. That's Caleb's town. So his town that he settled is also uh, encompasses Levites. Levites were not allowed to own the land. The local tribe and person owned the land. The Levites got to own their own houses and live there. All right. So they were living in uh, Caleb's town. And by the way, if you ever wanted a safe town, I'd hang out in Caleb's town. Does that make sense? He's pretty tough. Verse 8, on the east side of the Jordan of Jericho, they designated Bezer in the desert on the plateau in the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth in Gilead in in the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan in the tribe of Manasseh. Any of the Israelites or any alien living among them, notice they get equal rights, who killed someone accidentally could flee to these designated cities and not be killed by the avenger of blood prior to standing trial before the assembly. All right, simply put, There's six cities, three on the east side of the river, three on the west. And they're organized north, midlands, and south. That's it. Why? To get one close to everybody. That's all you need to know moving forward. Let's go to chapter 21. Let's change directions a little bit. Now, the family heads of the Levites approached Eleazar the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the heads of the other tribal families of Israel at Shiloh. Okay, Shiloh's the new headquarters. It was moved from Gilgal to Shiloh, more in the middle. And these guys are all the big dogs of Israel. Remember, there are 12 tribes. All those tribes have leaders. 
So the family heads of the Levite clans, of which there are three, they go up to the leadership and say, we have a problem. It says, they said to them, the Lord commanded through Moses that you give us towns to live in with pasture lands for our livestock. So as the Lord had commanded, the Israelites gave the Levites the following towns and pasture lands out of their own inheritance. Now, we know that they were given a half square mile of pasture land at every town. So it was enough to graze all their sheep and cattle and things like that. So let's talk once again. Remember, who are the Levites? Out of the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the boys, he was named Levi. Strauss. No, it wasn't. Okay. His name was, I I had to throw that, that was stupid. It wasn't even funny. Okay. (laughs) Levi is one of the boys and he had three boys. We're about to talk about them, but notice that the Levites did not get any land. Remember I showed you the map last week, pointed it all out. His land was not there and Joseph got two of them. Manasseh and Ephraim, they got the spots. But Levi got booted out and he was scattered over all of Israel. Why? Because of the curse of his father. I need you to keep your finger where we're at. and I want you to turn back to Genesis. Go back left to Genesis 49 verse 1, page 38. I'll show you exactly why. When dad was on his deathbed, he gathered his sons around him and he began to prophesy over them. They were hoping he was just losing his mind. He was not. He was dead on accurate, and everything he said about his boys came true to a T. And what we are seeing now is still effects of that prophecy from their father. It's echoing now. I mean, literally, we're going down a number of generations. We're now about four generations out, and it's all coming to pass exactly like dad said, this is what it says. Genesis 49, one page 38. Then Jacob, remember his name was changed to Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. He called for his sons, his 12 sons. And he says, gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father, Israel, Reuben. You are my firstborn, my might, my, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in powder, power. And you can hear him in his mind. He's like, amen. Yes, dad. I'm awesome. Now you preach it, dad. Everybody needs to know, right? Oh, but look at the next verse. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went into your father's bed onto my couch and defiled it. You're done, buddy. Anybody know this story? Okay, here's what happened. Uh, Reuben was the firstborn. He's supposed to have a double portion of inheritance. He was supposed to be the next big dog of the family. What he ended up doing was going in and sleeping with one of his dad's wives. His dad had two wives and two concubines. Bilhah, who later had Gad and Naphtali. Remember, that's some of the boys from the tribes. Their mom. He goes in sleeps with their mom. Now you would look at that and you would go, first of all, creepy. Second of all, what, what's your problem? He was trying to assert and force the rights of a firstborn son to start taking over his dad's territory. Boy, did that backfire. 
It completely fell apart. Reuben was sidelined. He was taken out of his power and authority. His double portion of inheritance was ripped out of his hands, handed to Joseph, the good son, and he was relegated to obscurity. When we looked at the whole map, do you remember where Reuben was? He's kind of off bottom to the left. He's not important anymore. He got shut down because his dad cursed him. This is exactly what occurred. Let's keep going. It says... Simeon and Levi are brothers, their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council, let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. What did those boys do? Anybody remember that story? Okay, here's what happened. They had a sister, and the sister was raped. They then exacted vengeance. The idea of doing vengeance was not the initial problem. It's what they did. They came around to another tribe of people. that One of the guys had committed the felony. They were supposed to go take him out. They went to his whole tribe, lied to them, schemed them into... I'm trying to keep this all PG. They schemed them all to do something that would render them inoperable, went through, and slayed them all. They killed the whole entire town. Now, that was way too far. You don't do that. What did God say to do? You don't just go off in your own anger and do whatever you want. That's not going to fly. They were then cursed. What was their curse? They would not have their own place. They would be scattered throughout Israel. Do you remember on the map? What happened? Simeon didn't get his own land. Where was his land at? In Judah. His brother's land, he's right in the middle of it. He didn't have his own. So he had to go settle down in his brother's land. And you can imagine that older brother would always remind him of that. Right? Levi was cursed as well. That's why they're being scattered throughout all of Israel. But you go, wait a second. Levites are good guys. They get to work in the church. How is that a curse? I mean, yeah, they're scattered all over the place, but really they're the ones that get to help out. They're the Levites were the priestly line and the Levitical line. So obviously it's wrong. Hold on. There's two reasons why things got altered. Everybody remember the golden calf incident, right? That's a black mark on Israel's record. The golden calf incident goes like this. Moses is up talking to God, hanging out way too long. Down is Aaron, Moses' brother, who's a horrible leader, by the way. And this horrible leader is down there. Everybody starts turning on him. They all start doing their own things. They make a big golden calf, make their own God, start dancing around. A whole bunch of them start worshiping it, and everything gets out of control. Moses comes walking down with Joshua, because Joshua waited halfway up. He grabs Joshua, and he goes, what? Is that war? And they're like, no, I think it's a party. They go walking in and they see everyone worshiping another God. Moses freaks out, smashes the Ten Commandments, and starts laying down judgment on these guys, right? Well, now they have to be punished. They have to be executed. He said, all of you, who's on my side? The Levites all ran to his side. Now, why? We don't know. But they stood up for righteousness. He said, with the swords at your side, go and slay your brothers. The Levites went out and cut them all down. 
all the ones that had been involved in the golden calf thing. That's number one. They were brought back in to blessing because of that. Second incident. On the plains of Moab in the book of Numbers, Israel was being judged by God because of their idolatry. They're all hanging out up front. And some guys, to snub the face of leadership, to snub the face of God, a guy takes a woman into a tent that was a no-no, does it right out in front of all of Israel, just to show that he doesn't care about their leadership. Phineas, Eliezer's son, goes and grabs a spear, a Levite, runs in and drives a spear right through both of them into the ground and kills them. And the judgment stops. The Levites kept standing up for righteousness. That's why they are the leaders that they are today. The priestly line and the Levites. Everybody got that? All right. So exactly like Dad said. Then it says what? Judah, verse 8. Your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Remember I told you from here on out, they're the big dog tribe. Because uh, look at um, verse, let's see. 12, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. Who's that? But Jesus Christ, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. All right. Now, uh, they may have thought it was David, but ultimately it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, but even locations, look at verse 13, Zebulun will live by the seashore, right? He even tells where they're going to live. This is this is years and years and years, way before anyone ever allotted the land, which was accidental, right? No, it wasn't. God knew it ahead of time. God prophesied it. I mean, even go down to verse 27. Joseph will be a fruitful vine. What was the most numerous of all the tribes? Manasseh and Ephraim. Everything goes down exactly like Dad said. All right, let's go back to the Joshua story. Joshua 21.4. So now they're going to give all the Levites their land. They're going to divide it out and say, all right, we need you guys all over the place. So let's kind of scatter you out according to what God has. And they drew lots or cast or drew straws. It says the first lot came out for the Kohathites, clan by clan. The Levites, who were descendants of Aaron, the priest, were allotted 13 towns from the tribes of Judah, Simeon and Benjamin. The rest of the Kohath's descendants were allotted ten cities from the clans of the tribes of Ephraim, Dan, and half of Manasseh. Let's pause. You're never going to understand this until you see the big picture. Levi had three boys. Kohath, Gershon, and Merari. These are the three boys. However, Kohath as the firstborn, also in his lineage had a man by the name of Aaron, Moses' brother, right? Moses and Aaron were Levites. Aaron's line became what? Priests. All the rest of the family were Levites. So even though there's only three boys, we have four groups. Levite, 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 priest. Are we all clear on that? So you need to take the first group and split it in two. Priests get this. Priests are the ones allowed to touch the stuff, minister to God, do the things in front of the Lord. Levites are helpers. They carried stuff, cleaned stuff, moved stuff. That's what they did. So you're going to hear allotments for four groups, but there's only three boys. That's why. Let's read it again. It says the rest of Kohath's descendants were allotted ten towns. 
and then skip down. The descendants of Gershon were allotted 13 towns. Merari received 12 towns. So the Israelites allotted to the Levites these towns and their pasture lands as the Lord had commanded through Moses. All right, another thing that you need to see. In what tribes were the priests given cities? Look back. We're in verse 4. Uh, five. Dang it, four. Here we go. <laughs> Be nice if I was organized. Here we go. Thirteen towns from the tribes of what? Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. Where are they on the map? Anybody remember? They're all the south tribes. They're all at the bottom. Why are all the priests at the bottom when the tent of meeting or the church or the tabernacle's in the middle? That doesn't make sense. If their job is to minister before God and to do all the fancy stuff at the church, why are they living so far away from where the center is? Because God's prepping for the future. The tent of meeting will not be at Shiloh for long. Where is it going to be moved? To the holy city of Jerusalem. Where is Jerusalem? It's in the south. God knew that. I bet you anything, they're all scratching their heads and going, I don't get it. Why the heck am I living here? Really? I'm in the south? I've got to travel all the way up there just to go to church and do what I'm supposed to do? Clearly, God doesn't know what he's doing. All right, let's make it personal. Why do you live in Placer County? I bet there's a bunch of you that are going, never in my wildest dreams did I ever believe I was going to live in Placer County. I had no idea I was going to live in Roseville, Rockland, Lincoln. This is not my plan. This wasn't my desire. I don't even know how I got here. When the world is going on, all of a sudden this happened and this happened and this happened, and now I'm here, and clearly God doesn't know what he's doing. Everything used to be so successful and all worked out when I used to live back there, and now I've been moved out here, and everything's just kind of falling apart, and I don't get it. I'm away from all my support. Anybody ever felt like that? Because God knows what's around the next bend. And he's prepping for the future. God is not out of control. It's always planned, always exact. God knows exactly where he needs salt to be. And you were put to be salt in this county. You were meant to be salt in Sacramento County. You were meant to be salt in El Dorado County. Why? Because God needs you here. You cannot live anywhere else at this moment. Unless God says so. And he will move and maneuver his people to be exactly where they need to be. Please take comfort in knowing that where you're at right now is necessary. If God is whispering to your heart to move, great, move. But if he put you here, you need to be here. Instead of fighting and wondering why, know that God has a plan. And he's constructing that right now. Let's go back to the message. It says this, verse 9. From the tribes of Judah and Simeon, they allotted the following towns by name. And it mentions a bunch of them. Look at verse 19. All the towns for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, were 13 together with their pasture lands. Now it's interesting because they get 13 towns, but we only have three to four generations from Aaron. That's not really a lot of people for 13 towns. The priests weren't a huge group. Maybe God was prepping for the future. The rest of the guys get ten cities. Then it goes to verse 27. The Levite clans of the Gershonites were given these twelve. And then verse 34. The Merorite clans were given these 
uh, 12. So Gershonites got 13, Merorite got 12. Nobody cares about this, right? I can keep moving? All right. Verse 41. The towns of the Levites in the territory held by the Israelites were 48 in all, together with their pasture lands. All right. Here's the big picture. There are 23,000 Levites. How do we know that? Because they got counted. And they were mentioned earlier. 23,000 people are in 48 towns. That's a lot of people for 48 towns. They are in every tribe of Israel, but they are not spread out evenly geographically. They're spread out in areas of high population, areas of danger, and they're spread out according to God's plan. There are largely four cities in every tribe except for three. Simeon and Judah share land, and they got nine. Naphtali, the little guys that didn't have tons of people, only get three. The whole purpose in me telling you that is where you live and where you work is according to God's plan. And he specifically says, I'm not going to spread you out evenly. I'm going to spread you out according to danger areas. I'm going to spread you out according to where I need your influence. I'm going to spread you out according to population. And I'm going to make sure that I got salt in every location that I need it. It's of course why you work with non-believers. It's of course why you have roommates of this sort or why you're doing this or why you're doing that. God is spreading you out for even flavoring. And he wants you to be that salt and light. If you're not, if you're just keeping your faith to yourself and you are not conveying the word of God and not sharing the light that is within you, why are you there? One side note is that a same a, a listing of the Levite towns is also given in First Chronicles chapter six. It's different slightly than this one. Lest anyone come back and go, oh, there's an obvious contradiction. There's not a contradiction. There's two reasons why the lists are different. Number one, not all Levite cities that were allotted were Israeli controlled. Some of them still had to fight for their land, and some of them obviously didn't get it. Uh, cities were shifted. Second, towns went down, new towns rose up, and they would move locations. So the town lists are slightly different. All right. I want you to think about it this way. Kind of a wrapping up thought. The key job of the Levites were to be the Bible guys of the nation. They were to promote God's word. They were to express the praise of God and excite worship of the Lord. That's their job. They were the Bible answer men. When all of Israel had a question, they were supposed to go to a Levite. It is estimated that no one was 10 miles away, no further than 10 miles away from a Levite city at all times. As a matter of fact, Warren Wearsby, who wrote a commentary, said this, since the common people didn't own copies of scriptures, it was important that the Levites identify with the people and explain the law to them. You starting to hear your mandate as a Christian? These Levitical cities were so located that nobody was too far away from a man who could not help them understand and apply the law of Moses. You are where you are because you're here to explain God to people. 
And they should know that you're a believer so they can ask you. You're not responsible to save them. That's God's business. But you're responsible to let them know where they can go. Verse 43, let's close it out. So the Lord gave Israel all the land that he had sworn to give their forefathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. That does not mean that there are no more battles. God told them back in Deuteronomy, you're going to take it slowly and you're going to have to fight for it. That was the plan. Verse 44, the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. That means that all their major borders were protected. Not one of their enemies withstood them, it says, meaning no force was left in Canaan that could root them out. And it says, not one of all the Lord's good promises to, oh, excuse me, the Lord handed all their enemies over to them, meaning all major people groups were hit. And not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. Okay, listen to me very careful. God's faithfulness gives us the book of Joshua. Man's unfaithfulness gives us the book of Judges. You understand? Drastically different. All right. So what's my major point? How did the Levites do? How did it go for the nation of Israel? Dismal. Israel ends up getting wiped out and they're only in their territory for a relatively short amount of time. They walk away from God and God takes them into captivity. First the north and the south. Why? In my opinion, the Levites didn't do their job. The Levites were to make sure that their nation knew God's word. The nation did not end up knowing God's word. As a matter of fact, there's periods in history where the king had to pull back out the scriptures and go, I've never even seen this stuff. What are you doing with your life? Is this, is this what's going to happen to America? We have been sprinkled all throughout America. Christians everywhere. We are all over the place. Are we disseminating God's word? Are we being a God influencer in our environments? If we are not, what are we doing? Building our little kingdoms, doing our little things. It's all about us. No. Does God have to bring other salt around you because you've lost your flavoring? Will America slide into chaos? Because we didn't do our job, just like Israel. We know what we're called to do. Are you doing it? Am I doing it? That's a challenge upon our hearts today. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, may we be your beacon of light. May we be the sweet flavoring that draws men and women to you. May we be the ones to give an answer for the hope that is within us. May we be the ones that everyone knows that our job that they can come to to say, would you pray for me? May we be the priests in our society. And Lord, you have indwelt all Christians here within the sound of my voice. Every one of us has an equal measure of God. And when you're in us, there's no telling what we can do. In these jars of clay is an extraordinary Holy Spirit.
May we allow you to move unhindered through our lives to change the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.